You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. I'm glad you guys are all here. I see a couple of faces in the crowd that I don't know. Uh, If you don't know me, I'm Dave. I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, And what we're doing this evening is we are getting back to our study of 1 John. Uh, This series is called Simple Truths because, as I've said a bunch of other times, much of what John teaches us in this letter are things that we have heard before. Uh, But indeed, we always need reminded of even the simplest things, the simplest points of doctrine always bear repeating for us because the people of God, though He loves us very much, are slow to uh, respond to God's Word. So He says the same things over and over and over again because we're dumb and we don't listen. Uh, But yeah, so it's been five weeks since we've been in 1 John. Uh, And I'm really excited to get back into this. I love verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book preaching. Expositional preaching is my favorite. Um, But tonight we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 15. And we're going to be looking at the concept of loving the brothers. Or as the King James Version says, the brethren. Right? And I'm not making fun of that. That sounds way cooler than what we got in the ESV So forgive me if I say brethren at any point, because that's what I grew up with, and the word's just way cooler. Um, But yeah, we're going to be looking at the concept of loving the brothers, uh, and why that loving the brothers is so important in identifying a true believer. And in addition to that, how important that loving the brothers is uh, for our own assurance of salvation. So that's what we're going after this evening. Um, This is actually going to be the theme of the next couple of weeks Uh, And that theme, again, is loving our brothers. So I guess this is Love the Brothers Part 1. Next week is following up. I've actually never had to do Parts 1 and Part 2, so this is new new territory for me. Uh, But this this passage we're in tonight mainly focuses on what not to do, right? Which is to hate your brother, right? So that's basically, that's 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 what we're pushing towards a lot of tonight, is what not to do. Um, So John first teaches us, uh, in the negative, and then moves on to the positive. It's a way the, that a lot of the apostles write in order to really drive a point home. Uh, so before we actually get into the text itself, let me give you a little bit of context for this letter, in case you forgot, because it's been five weeks. And by the way, I really had a lot of fun uh, taking a break for a month uh, and preaching on my favorite doctrine that one time that I did preach. I really had a good time. I hope you guys did too with the five solos. It was awesome. And we made some friends with other churches around here, and it's about time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the context of this letter, 1 John, in case you forgot the context, uh, John writes this letter in order to combat the heretics that have come up in Asia Minor, right? What is now Turkey. There were, there was the, the church was popping off there in Asia Minor, and then some heretics came in, started causing chaos, teaching false doctrine, uh, telling the true believers that they weren't actually Christians, introducing all of this false doctrine. And John writes in order to show the error of the false teachers and also to remind the actual Christians that were there in Asia Minor of the truth that they already knew. Right? So he's writing to combat the false teachers and also remind the believers of the truth that they know. But John also wrote this letter and he tells us in chapter 5 that he wrote this letter in order to give assurance to the believers who were there. He says, I write these things so that you may know Right, that you may know that you belong to God, that you may know that you have fellowship with God, that you may know that you're actually saved. You may know that you're a Christian. Right, and John does this. He gives assurance to the readers of this letter by giving a series of tests to measure whether or not a person is actually a Christian. 
right? We've seen the moral test, right? Whoever does not obey God, anyone who walks in darkness, right, does not know God, and if they say they do, they're a liar. Uh, tests like that. We've seen the moral test. We've seen the love test once before. Um, a couple other tests I'm blanking out on right now because it's not in my notes, uh, but we'll get to those. Uh, but we've already went through about three or four different tests, and now we're on cycle two of the same test. It's funny. John writes in a circle, and it's, it's really maddening because uh, Paul writes really linear A and B and C and D. Therefore, here's my conclusion. John just keeps going in circles, repeating the same stuff over and over again. Anyway, that's my burden to bear. He drives me nuts, but he's good. I'm not, I don't sound like I'm like, talking bad about the apostle. But man, his writing style, why couldn't everyone be like Paul? Um, God gave us different authors with different styles for different people, and I appreciate him for that. But John's not for me. Um, His style, John is for me. I'm just digging a hole. (laughs) I'm just going to shut up and move on. Um, But yeah, John gives us assurance, or God gives us assurance through this letter, because John gives us a series of tests to measure whether or not a person uh, is a Christian. And, And these... Uh, tests give assurance of salvation uh, to those who pass the tests. And they likewise reveal those who are false. And then the third use that I've noticed for these tests is that whenever an actual believer is falling short, these tests let us know, hey man, there's sin in your life, and it pushes the real believer to repentance in areas where they're failing in greater faithfulness to Jesus and greater reliance on Jesus. Because as we look at these tests, we see that none of us can nail these tests 10 for 10, always. And we need a Savior. Right, but with that being said, we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. I don't know how this thing is going to work this evening. We've had, it's been on the fritz, so feel free to use those uh, hard copy Bibles as well. 1 John 3, 10 through 15. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth here. God, I ask that you would break us with this text. That you would reveal to us any animosity in our hearts that we have towards other believers. You would show us what's wrong with us and what's right with Christ. That you would convict us of our sin. That if there are any unbelievers present, they would see what you call your people to do and you might attract them to Christ by letting them see the love that Christ has for his people and likewise the love that his people ought to have for one another. God, break us open on these words and then stitch us back together with your gospel. Please do so for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 10, John starts off, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So right off the rip, right off the bat, John picks up a recurring theme that we've talked about uh, 
probably a couple months ago, that there are two groups of people in the world. That's a big theme for John. Two groups of people in the world. The children of God, or the people of God, all right, the people of God, and the children of the devil. So the children of God and the children of the devil. There are two families. We talked about, uh, I believe, a month or, month or two ago. There are two families in the world. There's the church, and then there's the world. The world is that unbelieving world system that opposes God. All unbelievers are found there. Right? And then there's the church. And there is no third option. You're either in one family or the other. There is no neutral group. There is no middle ground where you've got a foot in each family. Right? One or the other. Now the church, as you guys already know, I'm sure, the church are those who have repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people who make up the church are those who trust in Christ alone, who have laid themselves open before God and said, I am a sinner and I need your son's righteousness and I need his propitiatory death, his satisfying death, satisfying the wrath of God. I need his life and death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And we've trusted wholly on that work of Christ. Those people make up the church. I stress that. Because though we're talking about families in an allegorical way, you are not born into the church. Regardless of what some of our good brothers and sisters in the Reformed tradition may say, you are not born into the church. You do not belong to the people of God just because you're born to believing parents. It does not work that way. You're not born into the church. God brings you into the church by giving you the new birth. So I guess you are born into the church if God decides to give you the new birth and cause you to be born again, where you see Christ and you believe the gospel. But those people are the ones who belong to the church, those who have been born again, those who have been converted. The world, everyone else. Everyone else in every other false religious system, in every form of atheism or agnosticism, everyone else. These people are the unconverted. John uses really strong language. He says these people are not the children of God, but they are the children of the devil. Right? They are dead in their sin. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, they're following their own desires after their own flesh and truly being led along by the devil. Right? Paul says that in Ephesians 2, uh, by the prince of the power uh, of the air. That's the devil. That spirit that is uh, at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? That is who that the rest of the world is following. And as they're following him, the world is opposed to God and opposed to his Christ. And therefore, opposed to the people who trust that Christ, the people who follow that God. But in this discourse, John is telling us how we can know which family we belong to. John's telling us how we can know which group we belong in, the people of God or the world. And he says, by this, it is evident Right? By this it is made clear. By this it is made apparent who are the people of God and who are the people of the devil. Who, are the, who is the church and who is the world. So John's giving us tests. Right? By this is evident. Get your ears open. The first thing he says is whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. This is the theme that we saw last time, uh, six weeks ago. Right? This is what we saw in chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. And essentially, John was teaching us that those who have been born again, those who are the people of God, those who have been converted, who trust in Christ alone, we do not go on in unrepentant sin. We do not live a lifestyle of sinfulness. That's not what we do. You will sin and you will sin every day, but the true believer repents of their sin. Uh, to quote Paul Washer, I know the men's group is going through uh, some stuff Paul Washer has said, uh, something that stuck with me. As he said, to have a new relationship with God is to have a new relationship with sin. 
If you don't have a new relationship with sin, then you do not know God. If you view sin the same way that you always did until the moment that you claim you were converted, then guess what? You haven't actually been converted. So, a good question that we ought to ask ourselves in light of that line, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, ask yourself these questions. Is that sin which was once your friend, which was once a great joy to you, now your greatest enemy? Is it? Do you strive to kill your sin? Do you hate your sin? Do you hate yourself when you commit sin? Do you pursue godliness? Do you strive to be like Christ? Do you look into the Word of God seeking out what is the will of God? What has He revealed? What is His, what is his command for me today? How might I please Him? Because if that's not you, you've not been converted. Because a child of God hates sin. A child of God may still commit sin, but a child of God desires to be rid of it and fights it. And if that is not the theme of your life, the theme of pursuing righteousness and practicing righteousness and repenting when you sin, if that is not the theme of your life, John says you are not in God's family. Period. So that is one way that we know which group that we're in, but I'm not going to rehash that entire sermon, although that is a great text, 1 John 3, uh, 4 through 9. Right? But that's one way that we can know. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So the opposite is true then. Whoever practices righteousness is of God. But then John puts something in that same category of importance. And this, this stunned me a little bit. In the same exact category of importance as obeying the commands of God and striving to be holy, he says this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A lot of us wouldn't have thought of that. Like, I wouldn't have put those things in the same category. I'm just being completely honest. Then again, I'm a, I'm a tad bit of a legalist. Uh, just to lay that before you all, that's something I struggle with. Um, but John says that this is just as important of an indicator of salvation as pursuing holiness and killing sin. To love the brothers. That's the command. He says, the one who does not love his brother is not of God. That is an astounding sentence. So John is starting a new test for us, and that's what we're entering into, is the test of love for the brothers. So John is saying, if you do not love your brother, you're not a part of God's family, that you are of the devil, and Satan is your father. But in studying this, right, my first question, whenever I got to that line, nor is the one who loves or does not love his brother, my question became this, who is my brother? Right, And I know what some of you are thinking. I sound like that man that Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to. <laughs> right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor, Lord? Right? <laughs> like, that's kind of what I felt like whenever I was writing my notes. I was like, well, who is my brother? And it made, my, made myself laugh. Um, but so here, before we, before we answer that, uh, who is my brother? And what does it mean to love uh, the brothers? I, w- I want to lay this out for you. We already know, it has already been established in the Gospels, Right? And we all know this already. It's established actually back in Leviticus that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Right? You can look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? You guys know that one? The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. But Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man who's laying half dead on the side of the road who's been robbed and beaten. And all these other Jewish people walk past him and don't help him. But then a Samaritan walks past. And Samaritans hate Jews and Jews hate Samaritans back then. And the Samaritan actually has mercy on this guy, has compassion on this Jewish man, and he helps him out. He takes him to a, to a hotel of sorts and tells him, you know, patch this dude up, I'll pay for everything. 
Right? And what the principle that Jesus is establishing in that parable is that it doesn't matter who it is, everyone you come in contact with is your neighbor. Even if you don't like them. Because again, Samaritans and Jews didn't like one another back then. So we establish from that and from Leviticus in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, that your neighbor is anyone that you come across. Anyone. And you are to care for them. You are to pray for them. You are to show kindness to them. All right? So we love our neighbor. I want to nail this down real quick. We, we love our neighbor regardless of religious affiliation. Because we have a good brother here this evening who was once of another religion. We became friends and God converted his soul. So we love people of other religious affiliations. We do not hide from them. We love people of regardless of their sexual orientation. Again, same thing. Glory to God, we've seen that here in this church. We love people regardless of their socioeconomic backgrounds. We have people with different cultures that are here. We have have people of different uh, uh, financial backgrounds, whatever. We love our neighbor, whoever that that person might be. The command to love your neighbor as yourself encompasses all people. Whether or not they ever convert, doesn't matter. We are to love all people regardless of where they're at, how messy their life is, whatever. I just wanted to nail that down real quick. But brother is a different word. Right? So we already know you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. So why would John, what is John getting at? Right? Couldn't he have said, nor is the one who does not love his neighbor? Couldn't John have said that? Why does he have to use the word brother? What John has in mind is our spiritual family. That's, that's who the brothers are. The other people who are also the children of God. Your fellow Christians. The people of God. The church. These are our brothers. Brothers and sisters. Right? Just so you all know, I'm not being sexist. I believe the word in Greek is adelphoi. It can mean brothers and sisters, and that's the one that it means in this passage. So I'm going to say the brothers, though, because that's what the text says, and it's less confusing. Um, so, right, you be all you can be, ladies. Um, come on, that was funny. I'm going to have some, like, women's major of some kind, like, write me some hate letter after this. Um, um, but I think uh, in light of this command to love our neighbor that John is telling us that there should be a special bond of love for the people of God. I think that that's what John's getting at. We're already, we already know we're supposed to love our neighbor, but there is to be a special bond between the people of God. So if I could dumb it down to this, love all people that you come in contact with, but especially love the brothers. I think that's the principle that we're seeing established in the Scripture. Love all people, but especially love your fellow Christians. Right? And, I, and I, I'll give you a metaphor for that. Right? Just like you, you care about your literal next-door neighbor, or at least I hope you do, and you would help them out if they need help. Right? You would actually care for them. You would show them love. But your family still comes first, don't they? That doesn't mean that you don't love your neighbor, but that means that my wife... I love her with a special kind of love that I don't have for my neighbor. Right? It's like, Jeff, you're cool, right? But she comes first. Right? You, you share a stronger bond with your wife 
than you do your neighbor. Or likewise, if my sister was in trouble and I only have enough to help my sister or my neighbor and they're both in trouble, guess who gets helped? My sister. There's a special bond between us that I don't have with just my regular neighbor. And again, that doesn't mean that I don't love my neighbor, but there's a special bond there. So again, love everyone, but especially love the brothers because there's a special bond between the people of God. But why? Why can John say that love for other Christians is such a big mark of a true Christian? Why is that such a distinguishing mark of the church, is that we would love the church? Why is that? Verse 11. Yeah, we're only in verse 10 still. Verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Well, what is that message? That we should love one another. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. He's saying, this after you guys heard the gospel proclaimed to you that, Christ, that you're a sinner and you need the righteousness of Christ, you need to trust in Christ, Christ died in your place for your sin, lived the law out for you, they heard that message, they repented, they believed, and then of first importance, they were taught, now love one another. This is what you heard from the beginning. This is not a new commandment. You guys have always had this one. This command to love one another is part and parcel of the gospel message that these people were taught. Again, it's a, it's a major command. And I really, at least I know I, and I'm not the only one in here, but I personally am really guilty of forgetting what a major command that this is. To love the brothers. And so I really hope that you guys will, this, I, I am the least hippie kind of person that you can possibly meet. All right? Seriously, like I'm a registered Republican, whole nine yards, right? I'm not a hippie. Um, that was funny. Come on. Democrats in the crowd, you can laugh. Um, but this, this command to love is sincerely a major command. We tend to forget its importance way too often. But John is actually just repeating what the Lord Jesus said. Right? He said, this is what you've heard from the beginning. And here's what Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is heavy. That is beautiful. So Jesus gives this command specifically to his disciples in the context that John 13 is happening in. Jesus has just sent Judas out. He's like, hey, you go. You do whatever it is that you need to do. And the devil enters Judas, and Judas takes off. So it's just Jesus and his actual disciples left. Jesus and the people who actually love him. And then he says, a new command I give to you. Right. So in the context, we're looking at Christians. Other Christians are in view. You love one another. You guys all here are Christians. You love other Christians. And he says, the world will know that you belong to me because you love one another. Notice Jesus doesn't say, the world will know your mind because you love your neighbor. And I'm not negating the command or making light of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says, you'll be known by, by the world as my people if you love one another. So this is an absolute non-negotiable. And that's actually why John uses it as a test. Because Jesus says, by this, they will know you're mine. So John says, hey, by this, we can know that we're his. Right? He's just using the same kind of logic. If you love one another, if you love one another, to love someone is to have a kind attitude toward them. 
Please hear that one. To have a kind attitude towards somebody. Likewise, to take care of them. To pray for them. To have compassion towards them. To do good for them. We could go on and on and on, but that in a nutshell is what it means to love. To have a kind disposition towards somebody and then seek their good. Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. Which tells me that our love is to radiate from His. As I have loved you, love one another. So if we have received the love of Christ by faith, then I think this is what is necessarily going to happen as a result. Again, as I have loved you, love one another. This is to radiate off of what Christ has done in us. And if we have received the work of Christ, then this is what happens. We have been loved. So now we love one another. So not only from the Apostle John, but also from Jesus, we see that this is an important measure of true faith. But after giving the positive command, right? That's what we've looked at so far, the positive command. Love one another. John goes on the negative and tells us what not to do. Right? Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Right? So you guys remember the story of Cain and Abel? Right? This is why we did the Bible story series last year. Right? Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. They both present uh, an offering to God. God rejects Cain and accepts Abel's. Right? We read in uh, Hebrews 11, I believe, that, that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. And God found it pleasing and acceptable. Which would then tell us that God probably rejected Cain's because Cain did not give his offering by faith. Which means that Cain did not love the Lord. Cain was not converted. Cain was not a believer. And then Cain, in a fit of rage, murders his brother Abel. So that's what John is bringing to mind. We ought not be like Cain, who murdered his brother, who did not give by faith. So what John is doing is John is using Cain as a prime example of a child of the devil. Right? Like the prototype of the children of the devil. As far as, I can under, as far as I understand, Cain was like the first unbeliever. Right? So Cain is the prototype of the world. Prototype of the children of the devil. Prime example of a child of Satan. Which is what we should not be like if we are children of God. So John says Cain was of the devil. He was of the evil one. And murdered his brother Abel. Because Abel was a child of God. Right? He says Abel... Abel's deeds were righteous. Verse 10 says, we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The one who is righteous, right? The one who practices righteousness is of God, is the principle we see in verse 10. So it says, Abel practiced righteousness. Abel did righteousness. Abel was a child of God. So the principle of verse 12, and sorry if I sound redundant, I just want to get this into your head because this is the verse that you're like, why in the world is that in there? It seems kind of out of nowhere. The principle of verse 12 is that Cain killed Abel because Cain was a child of the devil and Abel was a child of God. What John is saying is that it is the people, or I'm sorry, it is the children of the devil who hate the people of God. That's what he's getting at. We ought not be like Cain. Cain was of the world. Cain hated his brother. It is the children of the devil who hate the children of God. But we aren't to be like that if we're the people of God. We are not to be like Cain. If we are in God's family by faith in Christ, we are to love the brothers, not murder them. Right? That's the principle he's establishing. 
This is what sets the children of God apart from the children of the devil. This is a huge distinguishing mark. So question, are you like Cain? Are you like Cain? Because John says we cannot be like Cain if we belong to God. It is absolutely not consistent. And I know what some of you are probably thinking. I am not like Cain. I've never murdered any Christians. <laughs> right? Good on you. I appreciate that. Um, and I don't really, I've never wanted to murder a Christian either. So no, I'm not like Cain. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's sobering. And that's also not to say that a murderer cannot then receive eternal life. But he's saying that person, in the, in the moment of their murder, you know they don't have eternal life abiding in them. You know that they don't. They can receive forgiveness, but you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him at that moment. So do you hate any believers? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. We ought not be like Cain who murdered his brother. Do you hate any believers? Let me pose it a little bit better because I know what you're thinking. I don't hate them. Do you lack love for the brothers? Do you lack love for the brothers? In John's opinion, John paints in black and white. There is no third option. You either love or you hate. Apathy and indifference is hatred as far as John is concerned. He's very black and white. So what is your attitude toward other believers? What's your attitude towards Christians? Is there any affection? Or do you hate them? Do you have disdain for certain Christians? Would you rather hang out with unbelievers consistently rather than hang out with your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do you often find yourself thinking that certain believers aren't worth your time or that they're beneath you? Do you harbor ill will or a grudge against another believer, even if they did you wrong? That doesn't mean I'm not trying to gloss over that. But do you hold a grudge or harbor ill will? Do you love your fellow Christians? I'll ask again, are you like Cain? Are you like Cain? Because if you don't have a deep affection for other Christians, then you may not be a Christian yourself. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now the concept in verse 12 that the children of the devil hate the people of God lead us naturally to verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That principle that the world, Cain being the prototype of the world, killed Abel, prototype of the people of God. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We ought not be surprised that the world is opposed to us. Again, look at Cain. Cain, being of a different spiritual family from his blood brother, killed his own flesh and blood because they were of two different spiritual families. We ought not be surprised then if we can look to Cain's example. But we can see hatred from the world more and more, can't we? It's quite easy to see. It is getting worse for us at least in, in the U.S., in small degrees, I'm not trying to say that like wholesale martyrdom has occurred, although for whatever reason, our, our prayers are definitely with those men and women in Texas uh, who were shot. Um, they were martyred. They were martyred. And Revelation tells us that martyrs receive a song that no one else can sing. God be with them. Um, 
But it is getting worse and worse in small degrees for us. We ought not be surprised by it. The world hates the church. And the families, the two families, are at odds with one another. We can see that the world doesn't have any tolerance for the people of God. Worldwide and here in the U.S., they mock us. They murder us. They tell us that we're bigots, that our morality is a thing of the past, that we're arrogant for claiming that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ, that we're hateful and stupid for speaking about sin and the necessity of repentance and the coming wrath of God against unbelievers. They're hostile toward us because they're hostile towards God. The world may tolerate us being around so long as we're silent, but the moment our lives or our words give a faithful witness to Christ, they turn their backs on us. They want nothing more to do with us. Now, I can't help but to think, in light of that hatred and hostility found in the world towards the people of God, that John is telling the church that we are to be a sacred, safe place for the believer to run to in juxtaposition to the hostility of the world. I get this picture in my mind that a believer comes in from the world and runs to another believer and says, they hate me out there. It is so hard out there. I am opposed at every turn. They mock me and they mock my God. They scorn me. They're killing my family. They ostracize me. But I know that I can come to this person. And be cared for. This person will love me. This person will accept me. Because we share one Father. One Lord. One book. One faith. We are in the same family and love one another because Christ has loved us both. That's the picture that I get in my head that John's painting. It's so hard out there. But the people of God are supposed to be people that the people of God can run to. And then there's going to be shelter there, and they're going to be cared for. Can a believer say that about you? Seriously, ask yourself this. Can a believer say that about you? Or are you cold? Or are you apathetic toward them? Merely a face that they see on Sunday. And I'm not just talking in the face of murderous persecution, but I mean in general. Are you somebody who is involved with the brothers? Someone who loves them? God help us. And God grant us repentance if that is not us. God forgive us if this is not true of us. Because we, unlike the world, are to love the brothers. And that love is to be seen and known by the world and the brothers. John goes on to tell us in verse 14 that there is a great blessing for those who love the brothers. He says, we know that we have passed. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So we know that the red light, right? Like, ding, 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 ding. He's talking about assurance. We know. John says we can know beyond a, a doubt that we have passed from death to life. What John is saying is that God is holding out the promise and blessing of assurance of salvation if we love the brothers. 
That's what he's saying. And this is a great blessing. Please don't overlook this. Um, God is not holding out salvation for us if we love the brothers, but he is holding out assurance of salvation. That is a great blessing that God is, is offering us to, to take. The blessing of assurance. To know that you're saved. To have no assurance is a terrible thing. If you have ever went a, a season in your life unsure whether or not you were saved, it is like living in your own personal hell. Living without assurance is misery. But God has more for us than that. That's one of the things that's beautiful about Christianity that you don't find in other religions. That we can actually know that we know God. We can actually know that our sins have been forgiven. God is promising us this blessing that we can actually know without doubt that we're saved. And one way to know is if we love the brothers. Again, I want to make this note. John does not say... If you love the brothers, you will pass over from death to life. That is not what John has said. He says, we know that we have passed over. That's past tense. He says, we know that this has happened at some point in the past if we love. Again, verse 10. By this, it is evident. It is apparent. It is made clear. We have proof. We receive assurance. But the only way that a person passes from death, spiritual death, into spiritual life is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by doing righteousness. Not by loving the brothers. Right? This is not salvation by love of the church. We believe in salvation, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. John 5.24, Jesus Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So the one who believes God's testimony about Jesus, that He is the Lord, He is the Savior, He is the Messiah, He is the Christ, the one who believes that testimony from God has passed over from death to life. So the one who trusts Christ has passed over. But again, God promises to give assurance to those who love their fellow Christians. So let me pose this to you. Do you lack assurance of salvation? Do you lack assurance of your salvation? If you do, look at how you love the brothers. Look at how you love the brothers. It's not the only test. It's not the only test John gives us. It's not the only way we can know whether or not we're Christians. But it is indeed an important one. Because as Jesus has said, and as, Paul, as John has established, the, ch- the world does not love the church. The church loves the church. Ask yourself that question. Do you love the brothers? Because God will withhold the blessing of assurance if we lack love. But here John says the blessing is ours to take. Now before we close, uh, I've got four things that I want to say. They're not so much points of application, but they're things that I, like, I, we need to address. Um, or things that I really wanted to address that I didn't really know how to fit into this thing. Alright, so just laying that before you. Uh, It's not exactly application, but I hope that these four thoughts on this passage and this subject of loving the people of God, loving the church, I hope that they lead us to repentance first and foremost. Because none of us love anyone like we love ourselves. So I hope they lead us to repentance. I hope they lead us to varying degrees and ways of application and greater obedience and love toward the Lord Jesus. That is my hope for these points. i got four. One, Many professing Christians have really ungodly feelings toward the people of God. Tell me if you've heard this one, because I used to say this one. 
And so did Dave Allison, from what I remember. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I love Jesus, but I cannot stand Christians. I'm not the only one that said that. I've heard it. I used to say it a lot. But let me tell you this. If that's your heart, even if you won't say it with your mouth, if that's your heart, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't love Jesus and hate his people. No, you don't. Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Before we get into that, Paul is writing on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. To bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. He hates Christians. He hates Jesus. He wants to see them killed. He wants to see them tried for blasphemy and stoned to death. He wants to see them die. And falling to the ground, Jesus smacks him off his horse. A blinding light hits him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus had ascended to heaven at this point. Saul had never laid a a finger on Jesus. We see here that Jesus so closely identifies with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. Likewise, to hate them is to hate him. And to love them is to love him. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. He so closely identifies with his people. Because believers are united with Christ by faith. Like we read in the confession, the first line. All believers have been united with Christ. He identifies with us now. So you cannot love him and hate his people. So I'll lay this before you. I read this in one of my commentaries. This like was a gut punch for me. A good gauge of our love for Christ is our love for the church. That's real. Furthermore, the church is called the bride of Christ. So I'll lay this before you. Be careful whose bride you're talking about. Be careful how you treat the bride. I'll tell you this, Autumn is my wife, and I love her, and I die for her. And if I heard any of you guys talking smack about my wife, about how ugly she was, or how stupid she is, or how annoying that you find her, or how much you can't stand her, I tell you this, you're not welcome in my home. You're not welcome in my home. Because that is my bride. I love her. We are the bride of Christ. He actually did lay his life down for us. And the bride of Christ may be sinful, and we may be unlovely at times, and we may be annoying, and we may be dirty, but Jesus gave his life for his bride to present her to himself as something spotless and pure, and something that he loves. He loves his wife. She belongs to him. He desires her. He loves her. You and I have no right to not love her like that. Be careful whose bride you talk about. The other one is this. And this one hit me. All of these hurt so bad. Love thee, brothers. Not select brothers. All the brothers. This command is all-encompassing. 
So please hear me on this. Not just our Reformed brothers. Let's be honest, most Reformed people are annoying anyway. Chief of sinners. Not just our smart brothers. Our theologically uh, inclined brothers. Or our friendly brothers. Not just our, our polite brothers. Don't just love your wealthy brother. Don't just love your attractive brother. Or your easy to like brother. Or your well put together brother. The whole group. Love the brothers. So let me lay this, and I may get in a bit of trouble for this. Love the brothers at Life Point Church. Because they're there. God has people there. Love the brothers at Northmoreland Church. Because God has them there. Love the people at Christ Community Church. Because God has brothers and sisters for us there. Love the brothers at the Rock Church because God has brothers and sisters that are ours there. You see what I'm getting at? I am not being an ecumenical. You all know me. I am 1689, ride or die. Right? I'm a Reformed Baptist. I'm not saying to glance over theological error. I'm not saying to glance over sin. But I am saying that wherever a brother or sister is to be found, we love them. And we don't draw unnecessary tribal lines. We love the brothers wherever we can find them. That doesn't mean that we don't teach. That doesn't mean that we don't correct. That doesn't mean that we don't rebuke because faithful are the wounds of a friend, according to Proverbs. But we love the brothers wherever they're at because Christ died for all the brothers. He died for his church. Now, I know that some of you guys here, uh, Christians have hurt you really badly. I know that that has happened. Uh, People in my family have been on the end of that. Uh, that a Christian somewhere down, the ro- somewhere down the road has done you wrong. And for those of you that that hasn't happened to, give it time. <laughs> right? Just give it enough time. It's going to happen. Because we're sinners. We're going to eventually sin against each other if we are in actual relationship with each other. But listen. Love one another. What someone has done to you does not negate the command of Christ. Love them anyway. That does not make what they did okay. I'm not saying that. But how we are treated does not change how we treat others. Forgive them. Continue to love them in spite of the hurt. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And lastly, what is the grounds of our love for one another? We're going to get more into this next week. But love the brothers, not because they are lovely. Because they're not. The bride of Christ is not lovely. We're not. But love them because Christ loves them. Love them because Christ loves them. And we are no better than the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ shed his blood for every believer in every age. And we ought to love them the same. Love the brothers. We do not love the church because the people are so great. Because again, we're not. But because the Savior of the church is so beautiful. We love the church.
So don't hear me wrong, I'm not being blasphemous. For Christ's sake, love the brothers. Because He loves them. And we have been bought by Him to be like Him. As I have loved you, you love one another. And furthermore, we ourselves are not lovely. You and I, we are sinners. We offend Jesus Christ every day with our sin, and yet He has loved us anyway. He has loved us. And He loves us with a faithful and everlasting love that never changes. Go and do likewise. Love the brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for loving us in Jesus Christ, Your Son. God, forgive us where we're like Cain. Grant us repentance where we've been apathetic or cold or just a Sunday face but not really involved with Your people. Help us to love them because You love them. Help us to look at Your love towards us and then want to show that love to them. Help the church to love the church. Please bless us and keep us in your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for breaking us open that you might stitch us back together with the gospel. Thank you for Christ who loved us, his bride, his church, and gave himself up for us. Thank you for making us clean in your son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church, let's go ahead and stand. We're going to go ahead and worship in song to our Lord and Savior. Um, before we stop, we're going to read from John 15. John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Watch and pray Finding me Thy 
Jesus painted all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He Praise the one who paid my debt. He 
As we do this, we are remembering what Christ has done for us on the cross, that He was the spotless Lamb that was sacrificed for our sin. And we believe that Christ is also here with us spiritually as we take these elements, remembering what He has done for us, communing with Christ. If you are not a believer here tonight, we'd ask that you please refrain and not take the elements um, with us. This is not, um, there is not grace um, or faith in these alone. You are saved by your faith alone in Jesus Christ. These are just things that we do as believers because we are one with him. So again, no, we want you to please continue meeting with us. We're very glad that you're here, um, but please do not take these elements. And above all, Consider what was said, repent of your sins, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be in the body. Um, but until we do this, um, we're going to go ahead, um, and you guys will come out through the middle, collect the elements as we have been doing, and then go back to the sides, to your seats um, in this time. Um, reflect on your life. Um, reflect on your relationship with Jesus Christ and remember what he has done for us. So you guys may please come.
Before we take the elements, we're going to do our confession of sin corporately. If you would all stand. And we do this to be reminded of our constant need for a Savior, that we um, constantly fail, um, we constantly turn to our own way, um, but Christ in His abundant love for us, if we have placed our trust in Him, has already forgiven us. We're going to go ahead and read these together aloud. Almighty and most merciful Father, we are thankful that your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, deeper than all our sin. Forgive our careless attitudes towards your purposes, our refusal to relieve the suffering of others, our envy of those who have more than we have, our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure, our indifference to the treasures of heaven, our neglect of your wise and gracious law. Help us to change our way of life so that we may desire what is good, love what you love, and do what you command through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in need of your grace and mercy. Lord, we have not been the most forgiving towards each other. Lord, we have not loved your bride the way you have loved us. We have found systems of of, of ranking in order to make ourselves higher than others that are in your bride. And Lord, we repent and we turn from those sins. And we do though through the do this through the example of Christ, who left his throne to dwell in human flesh and took on sin and performed the ultimate act of love on that cross for us. Lord, we come here clinging to the truth and hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, that if we look to the blood of the Lamb, You will save us. And that's what we're doing right now. We're looking towards the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We thank You for Your grace and Your mercy for us. We praise Your precious holy name. Amen. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when his betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's sing.
guys can sit down. Yeah, I'm wearing gym shorts. It's strange. Um, yeah, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as you guys know, we've been announcing for some time, uh, we are going to have some baptisms this evening. Um, That's why I had to change into my gym shorts and athletic shirt. Uh, You can tell that it's not the same shirt that I wore because this one doesn't have a pocket on it. Um, So I actually, yeah. Um, But before we get into uh, baptisms, uh, I just want to clarify what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're celebrating in case we have any unbelievers here or any believers that just need a refresher on baptism. Uh, Baptism is a symbol of the believer's union with Christ, that union that we've read about in the confession that I talked about briefly in the sermon. Uh, These people who are going to come up here in a little bit, uh, these people who are going to be baptized are publicly declaring their affiliation with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are declaring to the world that they have placed their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And they are declaring their faith and affiliation with Christ by taking on the sign of the new covenant, which is mediated by Christ. And the sign of that new covenant, the covenant of grace, is baptism. Now, we always want to be clear on something. Baptism does not save anyone. There is no salvific property in magic, uh, or in magic, not, not magic, in baptism. It is not magic. Yeah, there's no salvific property in magic either. The Bible says you actually go to hell if you're a sorcerer. Um, take that Harry Potter Um, but only the work of Christ saves people and that work of Christ is received by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone so this sacrament or if that word makes you feel strange this ordinance uh, given to us by is given to us by God to be a visible representation of the spiritual change that God has worked in these believers who are going to come forward. He's already worked it in them. Uh, you could think of it like a wedding ring, right? The ring doesn't make people married, but it's a sign to the world that you have committed yourself to your spouse, right? So likewise, baptism is a beautiful picture given by the Lord Jesus Christ that points to the spiritual transformation that takes place when someone rightly responds to the message of the gospel. Uh, I also want to be clear that baptism does not represent next-level Christianity. Right? It's not how this works. This is a command given to us from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is given to all believers without exception. Right? So these people who are coming forward tonight are seeking to honor the Lord Jesus by obeying His command to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in going under the water, they are identifying with Christ's death and burial. And likewise, their death in their old nature is now dead. They're buried. And in coming out of the water, they're identifying with being raised to new life by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been uh, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So will the five people who are going to be baptized go ahead and come forward and join me up here. Alright guys, so this is April and Ethan you can come up either side, it's fine and Rihanna and Farhad and Jessica um, and I am really, really, really blessed uh, to get to know these guys or uh, to get to know them over the last year uh, or so uh, God is truly a gracious God Sincerely. Um, man, like, I, I don't know what else to say. God is gracious in the fact that he saves sinners. Um, and all these people, they have their own story. They've elected not uh, to, to be given a mic this evening because they're all very shy people. Um, and I won't uh, take up all your evening uh, telling you guys uh, about them and their conversions. Uh, but this is a, a sincere honor to be able to give the sign of the covenant uh, to these people that God has brought into his family uh, by the working of the Holy Spirit through faith in His Son. Uh, so if you guys would join with me in prayer, and then we'll get to the ceremony of baptism. Father, thank You so much for the grace that You have in saving sinners. God, thank You for, for giving us the, the right as believers to take on the sign of Your covenant, Jesus. I pray that this would be a means of grace to these people, that this would be a moment that they could look back. And as Peter says, they, they appealed to you for a clean conscience. And they've already done that through faith, but this baptism is a visible drama for them that they can point back to. And they can identify with having their sins washed away, that they can identify um, with regeneration, that they can identify with walking in newness of life as they're brought out of the water. Lord Jesus, please be with them. And keep them in your hand as we know that you do with all people who belong to you. We thank you. And we praise you for what, they've been, for what you've done in them. In Jesus' name, amen.